Today's episode is sponsored by By Heart, which is an infant nutrition company built from the ground up to deliver real innovation on behalf of babies and parents. Their mission is simple, make the best formula in the world. In our house, we never skim on family time together on the weekends. Instead of racing around crazy, we prioritize time at home, time to relax, time to do fun, crazy things that we wouldn't have ordinarily. And you know who else doesn't skim? By heart. By heart is the only American-made infant formula with globally sourced ingredients to use organic, grass-fed whole milk without a drop of skim. Whole milk is full of healthy fats like naturally occurring MFGM, which play an important role in baby's brain development and growth. Are you curious about ByHeart? Redeem your welcome offer at byheart.com slash podcast with codename Zibby20 for a limited time. Hi, this is Zibby Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. I'm also the host of Moms Don't Have Time to Lose Weight, and I'm the editor of the anthology, which you should run out and buy, called Moms Don't Have Time to, a quarantine anthology. All proceeds of that book go to COVID-19 vaccine research. And I'm the editor-in-chief of Moms Don't Have Time to Write, a new publication on Medium, and we're accepting submissions, so please send your personal essays there. And if all that isn't enough, you can follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens, and my website is zibbyowens.com. Okay, now back to this amazing podcast. Today's sponsor is the Baby Trend Cover Me 4-in-1 Convertible Car Seat. This car seat is so unique. It addresses the number one complaint by experienced mothers, which I believe I am, which is sun in your kid's eyes, which is something that, of course, drives them nuts. And you're not going to want to put, like, what baby sunglasses on. That's never really worked for me. Um, along with the canopy, the Cover Me has a usage rating from 4 to 100 pounds. So you can use it for a long time and can be used infant rear-facing, toddler rear-facing, forward-facing, and belt positioning booster. The Cover Me also has a very convenient recline system, which includes a zero radio base and integrated recline flip foot. I don't exactly know what that means, but that's okay. The system allows the children to find a position comfortable to them and also limits the amount of space taken up by the seat when in rear-facing position. Basically, it's just an amazing car seat, and I wish I had had this when my kids were little enough to fit into car seats. It makes parents' and kids' life much easier. It's just amazing, um, and it has a UPF 50-plus on the canopy so your kids don't get a sunburn either. So your kids will love sitting in it. They can interact with everybody in the car, and it protects you both rear and forward-facing. There is a special 20% off code, which is COVERME20, if you go to babytrend.com slash OSA, O-S-S-A. That's H-T-T-P-S double slash babytrend.com slash O-S-S-A and put in the code COVERME20, capital C, cover, capital M-Me, the number 20. Also, I'm giving away one of these car seats. So if you or anyone you know is having a baby soon and would like a new car seat, which is something that you have to get when you, as soon as you're pregnant, um, I am giving one away. To win the giveaway, just write a review and give a rating to my podcast, preferably a five-star rating and a really nice review if you don't mind. Extra credit. If you do the same thing for my Moms Don't Have Time to Lose Weight podcast and my Moms Don't Have Time to Have Sex podcast, if you could do five-star ratings and reviews for all of those podcasts, oh my gosh, um, you will definitely be at the top of the list for entering this giveaway, and then we will pick at random. So enter the giveaway, use the code if you just want to get the percent off and order it right away, and again, Baby Trend, cover me, four-in-one, convertible car seat. 
go for it. It's June. Happy June 1st, everybody. Welcome to my June book blast where I'll be releasing multiple podcast episodes a day, all based around a certain theme. And today's theme is Happy Pub Day. This is the pub day release for four books that are all coming out today, June 1st. Christine Mangan, Rebecca Stafford, Nicola Yoon, and Zakaya Harris. So enjoy today's June 1st book blast. Rebecca Stafford is the author of An Unlikely Spy, She's also the author of Bad Behavior, a memoir about boarding school and bullying. That book has been optioned for television by Matchbox Pictures. Rebecca's first novel, The Imitator, was published in the UK, and now it's coming out in the US in June with a different name. In the UK, it was called The Imitator, and here it's called An Unlikely Spy. Either way, it has an amazing cover, FYI. She is also the co-founder and publishing director of Kill Your Darlings and has previously worked for text publishing and Affirm Press. She's a freelance editor and creative writing teacher. Originally from Melbourne, Rebecca currently lives in Brisbane, Australia with her partner, son, and many pets. Welcome, Rebecca. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books to discuss An Unlikely Spy and everything else you're up to. Yeah, thank you for having me. (laughs) It's my pleasure. Listeners, it is six in the morning in Australia where Rebecca is. So we're having like an in the dark podcast situation here, (laughs) which is great. It adds an extra layer of intimacy to this conversation. So love it. It does. It, it adds. It adds to the the mystique, doesn't it? Yes, the, exactly. You know, the sense of disguise. <laughs> yes, already on edge <laughs> with your with the mystery behind your book and everything. Can you tell listeners what your book is about, and also what made you choose the first quote, the epitaph or epithet or whatever you want to call it, that discusses how to know whether or not you're a monster or if this is just what humans really are. Yeah, well, okay. So An Unlikely Spy is set in London. Uh, well, it's set in two, two time frames, both in London. Most of the book is set in 1939 and it covers the first year of the Second World War. The quiet period, I suppose you'd describe it, at least in for the British, during which time Evelyn, a young 21-year-old, is recruited to work for MI5, the intelligence agency based in London. And her work really involves the infiltration of far-right Hitler sympathiser group who are made up of very influential establishment figures in the UK and this is based on real events and real people. And the novel explores, you know, it explores her work as a spy the kind of the technical aspects of it, the processes for her training and, and how she will go about infiltrating this group. And it all, but it also explores the kind of psychological impacts of this work has on her, how it is she has really come to be in this, what I found anyway, quite extraordinary position of, you know, both this high stakes intelligence work at a really young age, but also how it was that she was kind of primed for this work, what, what made her really a suitable candidate for adopting, you know, a different persona and, and how she reflects on those processes and what it does to her sense of herself, but also her relationships with other people. And some of those people are actually very, very close to her and have actually helped her in, in the progression of her career. So that sort of personal and professional worlds really collide later in the story. But the, the, the epigraph from Clarice Lispector, you know, the, the quote is, who has not asked himself at some time or other, am I a monster or is this what it means to be a person? I suppose really jumped out to me. I like Lispector, but also the whole, the whole book sort of explores what, it, what betrayal means and also what, 
you know, for, for Evelyn, she, her work as a spy requires her to adopt the persona of these other far-right, you know, individuals, many of whom have really sort of abhorrent, awful views. As we know now, historically, you know, very anti-Semitic in particular, very much in favour of an allegiance or an alliance with Hitler and also, you know, a range of other kind of really problematic views as we look back on them historically. And so that was that was what I wanted to explore. Can Evelyn still feel that sense of betrayal for people, you know, who's, who are, you know, kind of objectively <laughs> awful kind of people, but she has to develop an intimacy and a friendship with them as well. So it's all around that kind of complexity that I wanted to explore in the book. And how, what piqued your interest about this to begin with? So your last book was about bullying and boarding school. And now we're like deep in the like James Bond as a woman type (laughs) of, you know, World War II. How did you get there? Like what, what piqued your interest about it? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I've I've been asked that a lot and people sort of asking if there are threads between the earlier books. I mean, I was really just interested in, you know, that kind of fundamental question of, you know, where do we, where do we find belonging? And, you know, so often we can find belonging in the wrong places. And my first book explored how that happened to me as a teenager. Obviously, this is fictional. It's set, you know, in the 1930s in London. So all of those sorts of differences, but it's really a character study of this young woman and how it is she, she, her life is so transformed by, you know, some some particular sort of circumstances around her own upbringing, her educational opportunities. And really she's, she, you know, she really shouldn't have been in that position at all because she was plucked kind of from obscurity when she wins a scholarship. Evelyn, this is, to go on to a prestigious boarding school. That's where she meets these people who become her friends, who who have influence later in the story. But, I mean, I'm interested in World, in World War II in London. I love London as a city. You know, I've spent a lot of time there. And I was interested in that particular period of the war. You know, I think we read a lot about, you know, like you said, you know, the sort of the James Bond, the action pact, the, the, the kind of military operational aspects of the war. I wasn't interested in that. I was interested in the psychological aspect of it. I didn't know a lot about the first year of the war, the so-called phony war where nothing was happening and there was still the belief that war wasn't, that, that it would be over. And it was really interesting to read back over so much archival material in the intelligence service at you know, there was this conflict between what the intelligence service were telling government because the government of the time in the UK really didn't want to go to war. They really wanted, I mean, it's understandable, obviously, but there was this real reluctance, whereas MI5, where, where Evelyn was working at the time, they were really warning them of many threats. But the, the biggest concern was this uprising of pro-German British nationals who in the event of invasion during that first year of the war there was a real fear that Hitler was going to be crossing the channel and in if in the event of that happening the intelligence agencies were really paranoid about these establishment figures rising up and helping with that insurrection and with that invasion too so so much of their work was focused on local people and the threats they posed as well. And to me that was just absolutely fascinating because there are so many (laughs) contemporary parallels between, between that. And I wrote, started writing the book 
in 2016, which was such a such a huge year for everyone, particularly for you guys over in the States, but also in the UK, Brexit was happening, nationalism was on the rise, Australia has its own complicated sort of political situation too. So there was a lot swirling around. So that that to me was really fascinating looking at that through the lens of this particular historical event and these characters and drawing out those parallels, I suppose. Did you major in history? Have you always been into history? Or No, I haven't had any kind of formal training in history. I read a lot of historical novels and, you know, it's just, again, I, I suppose... I suppose it, I didn't maybe set out to to write a book like this. It's just it was something that that, made, that kind of held my held my interest, and I wanted to know whether it would be possible to write a historical novel. So love it. You know that's it's, a, it's an accident an accidental historical novel. You know yeah maybe Whoops. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's funny. I mean, it's impressive. It's not really funny. I mean, it's just like. It's it's impressive because I mean I I don't mean to make it sound like I just sort of whipped it up because it no, like I say it was four years of you know so and I mean the the thing about historical fiction obviously is there's so much research and that was one of the really wonderful things about it too you know going and doing that research you know being being in these particular places spending time there but also I went and visited the National Archives in London in Kew which was absolutely fascinating because they'd one of the one of the things that happened during that early period of my research is they declassified, the government declassified a whole bunch of cables and archival material, these transcripts of interviews that, that MI5 did during this period, which kind of illuminated a lot of what was going on behind the scenes, but it gave me this sense that that sort of almost the personality of the people involved, though they're pretty sort of standard but the kind of language that was used, the attitudes, it was all, I mean, it was, I thought it was absolutely fascinating. It was a kind of nerd's paradise in the archives. <laughs> but that that worked its way into the book, the book too. So that was really fantastic. And then let me ask you a really stupid question. So is The Imitator the UK version of the same book or is that a totally different book? No, that's the Australian edition. So it, okay. that's called that the name of of the same book uh, over here so. is the Imitator. Yes, I know it's, it, it's a little bit confusing, but hopefully, hopefully, yeah, it's not I just too wanted to make it. sure. I was like, did she? She couldn't have done like a whole second book in the <laughs> same genre in the same time period. But okay, wow. So tell me about like the rest. Of, like okay, you're you've started all of this research, you've done these books and you also have started Kill Your Darlings, which are you? it sound, looks like from the masthead you're still involved in and everything. Tell me about starting that. Tell me about how you balance your time with all of that and all of the writing and just like what your life is like now. Yeah. Okay. Oh, <laughs> so yeah, I do. I run Kill Your Darlings, which is a magazine. Uh, we're online now over here in Australia, though you can read it anywhere in the world. So this is a magazine, it's a literary magazine, but we also, a lot of my time spent facilitating some other activities that we do. We run writers' workshops, mentor programs, manuscript assessments, because I'm, I'm also, you know, my day job is as an editor, I work, I was working in-house for various publishers over here in Australia, but I went freelance about five years ago. So I still do editing work as well on a freelance basis. So my editing and Kill Your Darlings works about part-time or so, maybe, you know, across the week, two and a half to three days, and then I spend the rest of the time sort of writing. So, yeah, I filled in, you know, filled in writing around 
other work, that sort of balance, I suppose. But I do try to write every day. So usually in the mornings. I also have a two-year-old. So that's, um, yeah, so hoping he's going to stay asleep throughout our chat well we will see and so that's obviously you know as I'm sure you and many of your listeners know that's a whole other element to be balancing with work and I mean working from home and obviously with everything being going on with COVID that's been challenging as it's been challenging for everyone life in Australia has been a lot easier for you know almost everyone else in the entire world so we've been we've been really fortunate okay we can't bubble wrap our kids to keep them safe. But we can give ourselves some peace of mind now with the Life360 app, which I am obsessed with. I first heard about this from a girlfriend at a party who told me that this was the app to use. So I got it. And now I am obsessed. It's a family connection and safety app that lets you track the people and things that are most important to you. And it's much more than sharing location. It is about safety. It keeps families connected and protected throughout the day. Plus, it helps you find your things. So I have tiles, one of which I put on my phone, which I lose a 100 times a day, and I can find it through the app whenever I lose it. Also, it lets me put in locations of interest. So I get alerts when my kids reach school after taking the bus or when my husband gets to LA or whoever you want to track. You can do it with Life360 and feel very protected and safe and It makes life better. It makes peace of mind better. Life360 has my family's back when they're on the road, and I can track their stuff too if I need to. Plus, of course, it's a lifeline during emergencies because you can have crash detection to know if one of the kids is in an accident and with two almost driver's license kids, that is super important to me too. So put away the bubble wrap and protect your loved ones with Life360. Visit life360.com. Or download the app today and use code BOOKS, B-O-O-K-S, all caps, to get one month of the gold package for free, plus 15% off all tiles. That's life360.com, code BOOKS. And working from home as well, it's just that whole, but I, I mean, I wrote the book. I was still editing. The book was accepted by my Australian publisher. I was I was about two weeks away from, give, you know, going to have him. And then I was doing editing. The bulk of the editing was, and working with my American publisher was when he was about nine months old or something. So I, was, I can't believe, I, looking back on that time, I can't believe I even did that. But sometimes that narrow focus and that task at hand Someone said to me once that, you know, what, you know, if you're, if you're working and you're a parent, your levels of efficiency just are kind of off the charts because you have such a limited amount of time and so much to do. And I found that that's the case. I procrastinated much less now. So that's, that's good. (laughs) I know people always ask me that and I'm like, well, I just like have to do it. Like I have, you know, this is my time. I focus on one thing at a time and I'm like, okay, now I'm doing this. Now I'm doing that. Now I'm like, doing like 20 minutes of like kids' medical forms. And now I'm doing, now I'm going to hang out with them. And, you know, I have four kids. So anyway. That's right. Oh my God. Okay. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) But I have to say my kids are a little older. I have a six and seven year old and then twins who are almost 14. In the pandemic, I was like, at least they're older. I mean, having a baby or, I mean, that is, I think having one child that age is 
harder than four kids who are older, just FYI, I think. Yeah, but I mean, presumably you had you were home. You had to homeschool the kids as well and do all. Yeah. Oh my! I just I don't know how that. that was yeah. Not fun. So anyway, it's not just. Fun. <laughs> so I get it. Yeah. yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But no, so that's so that's how the the day. Yeah, that day sort of spent. And I mean, it's not. I I feel lucky that I my you know my day job as as it was is also working working with words and and always engaging with writing and having conversations with writers because that's really enriching when it comes to my own work and being an editor has been so transformative for my own writing process and also when it comes to reworking my own material too. So that's been great. So did I make up that you're getting a PhD? Was that you? Did I make that up? <laughs> yeah, I, I was also doing it. I was okay, also I'm like, doing I'm, like, I'm literally like doubting myself. I'm like, that can't be her then. <laughs> <laughs> no, yes, I, I I thought it'd be a good idea to also do a <laughs> to do a PhD. So I st- I started that. That's I started that about four years ago as well. I have actually finished that, so I'm almost. I've gotten the examiner's reports back, so I just need to make a couple of changes. So in a couple of months, that will be done, and then I'll hopefully be. That's when I'll be awarded my doctorate. So, wow, that was the, yeah, that was probably the you know taking on too, you know too much too much. <laughs> there was a point last year when I was going, oh my god, why have I done this? But I had managed to juggle it until that point. It's just when the submission, the the mad scramble to get it in because I'd maxed out. I'm not sure what it's like in the states, but in Australia now with your PhD, you used to be able to kind of take you know as really kind of as long as you wanted. But they've cracked down here, and if you if you go over your four years, you've got to start paying fees and all this sort of thing. Oh. So I said to myself, right, I don't, you know, I've got to do this. And then it was just absolutely, absolutely crazy. So that was good to be to be done. But I've learnt, I've learned my lesson about. I've finally <laughs> realised I have to scale back, not scale up now. <laughs> oh my gosh! So one of your last projects is being adapted or was optioned or something. And what about this project? What's going on with that? Well, so far it's all quiet, quiet on that front. So, I mean, it'd be obviously wonderful if the book was to take on another form. So, you know, obviously, yeah, if, if anyone is, is interested, that, that's um, what's wonderful. So, I mean, you know, I think, you know, there's, there's an appetite for this kind of material as well. So, yeah, that'd be great if that was to happen. Is there anything you learned about that time period, not to distill your entire you know, magnum opus of research down to one or two sound bites. But <laughs> is there something about that time that you learned that you were really surprised about or just that isn't like mainstream knowledge or aside from the quiet period in general and, yeah. you know, the, the overall sentiment of the time? Anything? Uh, yeah, I think I think there were two. I think there were two things just which are sort of quite different, but they're sort of more social. I mean, maybe maybe I did did know these things, but they were definitely sort of clarified through the process of research and writing. So the first was that, well, I mean, I really came to the, the, the real, the real seed of the idea that that very first little sort of idea in the back of my head was I came across this article in a British newspaper and it was an obituary for a woman who she died when she was in her sort of late eighties. And it was only sort of right before her death that she'd revealed to her family. So she'd lived a pretty kind of conventional, ordinary, in inverted commas, life, and she revealed, you know, very close to her death to her family that she'd 
actually worked for MI5 and she'd been involved in parachuting into France, you know, during the occupation and, you know, really just extraordinary stuff. So she'd had this career during the war. Then the war ended and her service was sort of terminated and she was required to go back to her life as it had been before, which was living in, you know, the countryside, getting married, having children, never working again. And it just, I just could not believe this. I mean, you know, as a contemporary, you know, 21st century woman, this made my blood boil. It made my blood boil that these were the circumstances in which women's, you know, women's working lives were kind of, you know, dictated. But that she'd been erased from history and there was this tiny little sort of note in the newspaper about her achievements. So that really, that was a, that was a big propellant for me to, to uncover this story. I mean, Evelyn is not that kind of character. She, her, 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 she, she's not kind of overtly heroic. I think she's a courageous person in many ways, but she's much more complex in terms of creating this character on the page. But I wanted to uncover those kinds of stories. So, and I mean, I just came across countless stories of women whose service was obviously so important and so integral, but so often it's forgotten, you know, if we think about these war stories or even if we think about espionage stories, you know, it's such a masculine space. So that for me was really important. And Obviously, I was aware of, of women, you know, having these working opportunities during the war and then going back to the, you know, sort of the house, the housewife sort of role, such as it was back then, very, very limited. But, yes, reading it over and over and women who were, who were so accomplished as well was just, I found that really kind of demoralising and upsetting. And the other thing that I discovered, which I think maybe I sort of knew intuitively but it was confronting to read about it, was... The group that Evelyn infiltrates, you know, they're, they're, they're quite an, the extreme end of this far-right kind of attitudes, but that a lot of these social attitudes around nationalism and anti-Semitism in particular were fairly widespread amongst the establishment. You know, Britain, as we know, has problematic attitudes, you know, a problematic history when it comes to anti-Semitism, as so many countries in Europe do, but that these, these kind of, these ideas that this particular group take and go, you know, kind of extreme with, you know, were, were quite pervasive at, at the time too. So it was how one of the challenges was how to kind of, you know, immerse myself in that way of thinking and how to, how to kind of calibrate, I suppose, those attitudes as well. Obviously not everyone had those thoughts and, the, and those feelings and attitudes as well, but how to scale them against what we now know and how, what we now think about those particular prejudices and, you know, sort of hatred. So that was fairly, fairly kind of confronting too. But, yeah, those, those sort of those parallels as well. I mean, the book, you know, the book we sort of signed off on, on all the proofs and everything when over there for you guys in the States when there was, you know, the, the storming of the Capitol. I mean, it was kind of this... It was crazy that this was happening. <laughs> I mean, that's it was a whole, crazy day. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, how can we? It's that's a whole other conversation. But that there were these. That was a homegrown insurrection, and that this, in a you know, much smaller, small scale in my in my little book. You know, it, it just shows that this this history is is still repeating itself, and the, and this kind of the fermenting of these kind of clashes between between ideas and the way that we live 
and how we are governed just continues. So that was just really extraordinary as well. So it's a story, you know, the events of World War II, I think this is why people are still so interested in it. They keep playing out in, in a kind of different different format across our, our time, in our time span since the war. And that's why when we're reading it, I think we can draw, yeah, draw these kind of quite powerful par- parallels. Hmm. So are you working on a new project now because you're not doing enough? You know, <laughs> yeah. I'll finish the PhD. So I've got to take on something huge. Yeah, now. exactly. I would like to, I, I am thinking and, and starting to plan out another, another book project, but it's in the very, very early stages. So it does, re- it is set abroad again for me. It's set in some different locations overseas, which is challenging to my research because obviously we can't, we can't travel at the moment, so I'm just sort of thinking about ways I can um, using Google Maps a lot, <laughs> and just thinking about how I can how I can plan for that. So, but yes, I do I do hope to be writing writing in properly in the in again very very soon. If it takes place in New York City, just let me know. I can be your you know wonderful face yeah. from the street or something. You know? uh, any excuse <laughs> to come back to New York, I, I'd be absolutely there. <laughs> I've never been to Australia. It's like number one on my list. I don't know. If oh I'll yes, there, but I yes. Well, <laughs> when we, whenever we reopen our borders, it would be wonderful to have have you come over here. It's a beautiful uh, country. It's yeah. big though. You need a lot of time. You need a lot of time to kind I know, of which I don't have. Mom's yeah. don't have time to go to Australia. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> I understand. <laughs> Do you have any advice for aspiring authors to persevere? Really, I mean, so much of writing for me anyway is about sitting up you know sitting at the desk sort of turning up turning up for work I suppose so much of the work on this book as it was for my first book was taking the material that I had in that first draft which was you know very unwieldy very messy and just revising and working and you know for me obviously a lot of it was built around the research feeding that research through taking things out but yeah, being persistent and being patient. I, I think that's I think that's the biggest requirement of a writer because it is challenging at times and it can be frustrating when, you know, things aren't coming coming together as well. And and like I said, you know, this is a book that took me sort of four years. I had a and I had a baby sort of in between. Thankfully I'd done, you know, the bulk of of that writing work before he turned up. But yeah, that 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 just that that kind of patience and perseverance, I think, is the best thing to continue. And and to also to, sh- to be open to sharing your work with others. I've found that having some some really great trusted readers to get to get feedback, you know, really objective feedback has been really instructive and helpful for me. So I've been really lucky in that respect. Excellent. Well, Rebecca, thank you so much. Thanks for waking up early and doing this podcast. And uh, My pleasure. I mean, as you can see, I probably would have been up anyway. So, Still, But you wouldn't have been all dressed and everything. So, oh, yeah. thank you. Start on the day. Oh, and thank you so much for having me, Zibi. It's been so lovely to chat. You too. It's been great. All right. Okay. Have a great day. Thank you. Bye. Okay, bye-bye. Thanks for listening to part of my June book blast. I hope you enjoy it. Come back tomorrow for more. Thanks again to today's sponsor, the Baby Trend Cover Me 4-in-1 Convertible Car Seat. Don't forget to enter my giveaway and the winners will be announced at the end of this week. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. 
Also sign up for my newsletter at zibbyowens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. <laughs>